We are so glad that you have chosen to stream this audio, and we hope it will encourage you in your faith and your walk towards Christ-likeness. As a side note, we pray that this audio sermon is just supplemental in your relationship with Christ and in no way replaces the church you are plugged into or the pastor that God has put in your life to shepherd and care for your soul. And so with that said, please enjoy this sermon. We have prayed that God would use it in your life. Well, good morning. It is good to see all of you. They have brought me a stool because uh, I am not feeling well, uh, so I may sit. Uh, we'll see how that goes. Um, but it is good to be with you all. Um, I'm going to let Pastor Cameron shake your hands afterwards and so as to not contaminate you out of love for you. So, um, so that's, <laughs> that's that. Um, it's been a really interesting experience being sick this week because I have discovered <clears throat> things that I previously thought was impossible. Um, one was that it is possible to simultaneously not be able to stay awake and uh, not be able to sleep. And so I didn't know that was possible, but I discovered that this week. I also discovered it's possible to be extremely hydrated and still be really thirsty. Um, and so that was interesting as well. And one of the things that my body has decided over the last couple of years is that whenever I get sick around this time of year, it's just going to swell my throat up so that I can't sleep and I can't breathe and I wake up uh, just choking on myself. So, so that's a lot of fun. It's been a fun week, um, but they've got me on lots of drugs. Uh, so I can speak now, which is great. Um, and we're going to look at Luke chapter 1. Um, if you see me looking at my notes a little bit funny, uh, it's probably because I don't recognize what I've written. So, uh, so we'll see how this goes, all right? But we're going to ask God for grace and for his spirit to work through his word as he always does. So would you pray with me as you turn to Luke chapter 1? Holy Spirit of God, we ask that you would come and meet with us now. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would speak through your word. <clears throat> we pray that as we look at one man's worship after you have lovingly disciplined him, after you have entered into your people's lives and spoken sweet words of redemption and hope after hundreds of years of prayer and hoping. God, we ask that you would give us an understanding of, of what's happening here in Luke chapter 1. Uh, in this beautiful song, in this beautiful passage, we pray that you would work through it. Uh, God, that you would show us more of who Jesus is, that you would help us to understand exactly what it is you have done and what Christmas means. God, we are so grateful that you have come to meet with us. God, I pray that you would give me the strength to speak your word boldly and give me the wisdom that I need to speak it in a way that's helpful and edifying for us. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, Luke chapter 1, <coughs> we've been in the Gospel of Luke for a few weeks now, and if you recall, uh, Luke is writing a gospel, which simply means it's, a, it's a, an account of the good news of Jesus Christ. So it's an account of his life and works and all that's been accomplished in Jesus. This is really what Christmas is all about, right? It's about the coming of God to save his people in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what Christmas means. That's what Christmas is all about. That's what Advent is. 
And so as we look at the Gospel of Luke, Luke is trying to show us who Jesus is and what the significance is, what God is doing, and what and the promises he's been fulfilling in the person work of Christ. And so we've been looking at uh, a couple of mothers. Uh, we, we looked last week at Mary over the last couple of weeks. And before that, if you remember, we were talking about uh, Elizabeth and her husband, Zechariah. And so Zechariah was a priest who served in the temple, and uh, one day he's serving there, and an angel, the angel Gabriel, shows up as he's in the temple serving as a righteous man, as a priest, one who trusts in God, one who spends his life serving God despite the fact, this is really important to see about Zechariah and Elizabeth, they are faithful despite the fact that for years, for decades, they had prayed and prayed for a child, and God had simply said, no, not yet. And, and they had no expectation that God was going to answer their prayers, and yet they continued to serve the Lord faithfully. They were a righteous couple who trusted in God above all things. And so Zechariah is in the temple this day, and, and Gabriel shows up to him, and, and Zechariah at this point is almost 100 years old, and his wife uh, is, is similarly old as well. He says that she's advanced in years, and so we talked about how, you know, there's some things in life that, guys, you just don't say about your wife, and that's one of them. Um, and Zechariah says to Gabriel, he says, you're going to have a son, and he's going to be the son that was promised that... that would be the forerunner of the Messiah. He would come before God himself comes to bring salvation for his people as an announcer, as one who says the Messiah is coming. The birth of John the Baptist is evidence that God is keeping his promises. And Zechariah looks at the angel Gabriel and he says, you're crazy, man. There's, there's no way. I'm old and my wife's older than old and, and this just can't be possible. And so Zechariah, even as a righteous man who trusts in God, struggles with some doubt. And we talked about how Luke is writing this beautiful gospel for us because he doesn't just write for the, the religious, but also the skeptical, those, who, uh, those of us who wrestle with real things in life, who wrestle with real doubts about what God is doing. And, and so it's this beautiful account of Jesus' life and ministry that actually meets us where we're at. And so Zechariah, uh, then the, Gabriel says, okay, so you want to know how this is going to happen? Well, well, just to show you that it's, it's going to happen, I'm going to shut your mouth for nine months. God is going to not allow you to speak for your wife's entire pregnancy, which surely I have to imagine had him in the doghouse for a while. And so Zechariah is unable to speak for nine months, as Pastor Cameron mentioned earlier, and that's where we pick it up here in our passage today in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 57, is Zechariah has not been able to speak. And we're going to see today uh, what happens when John, his son, is born, and then the song that Zechariah sings. So last week we looked at a song of Mary, the mother of Jesus, called the Magnificat. And this week we're looking at a song uh, called the Benedictus of Zechariah. And, and the names for those songs come from the first word in the Latin version of those songs. And, and you know, I just kind of wonder, like, as they were deciding the name for those songs, I wonder how that conversation went. You know, like, we got to really think of something creative here, guys. And, and somebody goes, you know, I think the first word of the first line, I think that's it. 
And, and so the Magnificat is named Magnificat, which means magnify. And then the second one is named uh, the Benedictus, which means blessed or blessing. And, and it just kind of reminds me a little bit of when we drive through my wife's hometown and I'm seeing all the churches there, you know, kind of small country hometown, and all of them are named First Baptist, Second Baptist, Third Baptist, 14th Baptist. And, and I just kind of wonder, like, are we really not this creative, you know, that like, okay, we're just going to pick the first thing, and then the next one's going to be the next, you know. And so it just kind of made me chuckle as I thought about, this is where the, we've got the name for these songs, is the first, line, the first word of the first line is how they named them. But the thing about these songs is that that name actually has some meaning to it. Uh, whereas like first, second, third Baptist is just kind of, okay, that one was first, that one was second, and that one was 14th. Um, but these, they mean something. What we looked at last week was Mary's Magnificat and how she magnifies the Lord. She exalts him in praise as a response to what God has promised to do. And then similar, similarly, Zechariah is going to bless God, praise God because of what he's done and giving them a child, and not just a child, but the child who would prepare God's people for his coming. So that's where we're at, Zechariah, or Zechariah and his son's birth, Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 57. <clears throat> now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and rejoiced with her. Now, now exactly what God has promised has just taken place. Nine months later, this ridiculous-seeming promise that Zechariah had all these doubts about has just played out before them. Their son has been born, all the doubts despite all the questions. And, and then on the eighth day, it says, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they wondered. So I want you to notice something here. There's some tradition that, that, that kind of illuminates what's happening here in this passage for us. So, so it was tradition that on the eighth day they would circumcise the child, and this was a, a covenant sign. It was a sign that this child, just like its family, belonged to the one true God. It was a declaration of their allegiance to the God of Israel. And so when they circumcised their child on the eighth day, it was an act of faith. It was a statement. They were declaring that they belonged to the God of all these promises they had hoped in. And so they circumcised John on the eighth day. And then another part of the tradition here is that they, they normally would have named the child after a relative to honor that relative. And so it's thought that probably, you know, people were thinking, well, surely they're going to name him after Zechariah. I mean, the poor guy, he hasn't been able to talk for nine months. I mean, you know, maybe they're going to name him Zechariah after his father. And so the neighbors are, are shocked that, that they would name him something different. This, this was unheard of. It, it didn't make sense to them. It went against all the traditions and the things that typically happened 
And so whenever Elizabeth says, no, he's going to be called John, they're questioning her, and they're going to the dad, and they're saying, are, are you sure about this? Like, is this, is this what you want his name to be called? Because typically, the man was the one who would name the child. And, you know, I, I think there's some, some valid unfairness to that, because, ladies, you have nine months of some significant difficulty uh, and bring this child into the world. And then, you know, they're going to the Zechariah, who hasn't been able to talk because he doubted God's promise. And they're like, hey, what do you want him to be named? And, and so it's just, they're shocked at what's happening here. And Zechariah confirms it, which is really interesting because he hasn't been able to talk for nine months. And so can you imagine, like, how difficult it is to come up with a baby name now? Okay, so, so if you've had children, you know, maybe you and your spouse have had this, this argument about, you know, okay, what, what you want your first kid to be named or your second kid or, you know, I mean, Lord, if you have five or six, I mean, how many conversations and how many arguments that must have taken to decide on all those names, I can't even imagine. But Zechariah and Elizabeth agree on this name without even being able to have a conversation, at most, what Zechariah would have been able to do is write on a tablet like he asked for here to tell them that his name is John. So, you know, they didn't have access to... Did you know that there are apps for this now? Uh, this blows my mind. Um, there are apps uh, that are set up, and this is really strange, and, you know, something is wrong with this. They're set up kind of like Tinder, where, and it's baby names, so you're supposed to swipe one direction to say, okay, I like that baby name. And then you're supposed to swipe the other direction because you don't like that baby name. And then it will alert you when you and your spouse have agreed on a name. So it's like trying to eliminate the whole conversation. You know, it's like someone has realized, like, somebody one day was sitting around and they were like, man, I just got in a huge fight with my pregnant wife because we can't agree on a name. Light bulb. And, you know, what if we didn't even have to have the conversation? And then all of a sudden, we had a name. And so they've got apps for this now, which is just kind of odd to me. But, you know, I mean, whenever Brittany's pregnant, we'll probably use it. Um, (laughs) Because, you know, you have those hypothetical conversations about what you're going to name the kid, even before you ever have kids. And we've had a few of those, and I think we've disagreed every time. So maybe this will actually be helpful for us. But they didn't have this. And yet... I mean, Zechariah couldn't even talk, and they're in agreement. Well, the reason they're in agreement is because there was no debate. God had given this child his name. You see, down, down further in the passage, uh, starting in verse 66, here's what we read. And all who heard them laid this up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. So whenever John is born, whenever they see what God does here uh, in this event, they are in awe because God's hand is with this child. God has a specific purpose and plan for John's life. And so God actually gives John his name through the angel Gabriel Whenever he's with Zechariah in the temple, he says, you're going to call his name John. And so whenever they come to Zechariah and they're saying, Elizabeth's saying this, he's like, there's no debate. His name is already John. It's not that his name is going to be John. It's that he is already John. Because God has already given him this name. And I don't think this name was accidental. I think it's filled with meaning. The name John... 
in, in the Hebrew means God is merciful or God is gracious. And what we're going to see here is that God is going to use John's birth to signify that he is bringing about the mercy for his people that he had promised hundreds of years earlier, and then also uh, that, uh, let's see here, Um, so John's name means God is merciful, uh, and in the birth of John, God gives evidence of his mercy, that his commitment to the mercy he promised And then you're going to see this theme of mercy throughout the passage. So you see that the relatives and neighbors note that God has been merciful in answering their prayers and giving them a son. And then we see that God commands the name John because in John's birth, he's fulfilling those promises, demonstrating that commitment to his mercy. And then God's hand is with John for this purpose. So we talked about his hand is on him in verse 66. Look with me at 68 through 72. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Listen to 72. To show the mercy promised to our fathers. So God has visited and redeemed his people as evidence by the birth of John in order to show the mercy that he had promised he would show to them. And so in John's birth, we see evidence that God is exercising the mercy he promised he would have for his people. That's why John's birth is so significant. It's not just about a couple who experienced childlessness, barrenness for decades getting the answer to their prayers. It's about God's people as a whole seeing the hope of God's promises fulfilled. This is what the birth of John is evidence of. It's evidence that God is committed to the mercy he promised to show his people. God sends John to prepare people, in fact, for the Lord's coming because of his mercy. See 76 through 78 here. Look at what it says about John. So Zechariah, uh, in his song, he's going to start talking about blessing God, and then he's going to talk about the the incredible things that God is going to do through his son, Jesus. And then, towards the end of his song, he talks about his own son, John. And to you, child, you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. He's talking about John here. For you will be, go before the Lord to prepare his ways. So John is sent for a purpose, to prepare people to receive the saving work of Christ, to give knowledge of salvation for his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. So, so John is sent to do this preparing work before Jesus comes because of God's mercy. So John's name means God is merciful or gracious, and then in this passage even we see that his ministry is connected to God's mercy. It's evidence of God's mercy. And so John's birth and John's name are very significant. And, and that's why there's, there's no doubt about what his name's going to be. God has already given him the name. And so I, I think there's, uh, there's four things that we must always be learning that we're going to see in the next few verses here. Um, the, the first one is to fear God's majesty. The second is to obey God's word. The third is to praise God's faithfulness. And lastly, to proclaim God's works. So, so 
Zechariah obeys God and calls his name John, and they all wondered, and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed, and he spoke, blessing God, and fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea, and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, let's pause there. So, so notice first that the people's reaction to what God has just done in allowing Zechariah to speak after nine months of not speaking at all is, is that they fear God. They've seen God do something incredible, and their response is, is fear. And this fear isn't kind of like the, the trembling terror that, that we get when we have a nightmare. This fear is like the reverential awe at the power and beauty of God, much like you might have as you're standing next to the Grand Canyon or as, you, uh, or, or as you're sitting next to uh, a lion or a tiger. So whenever I was a kid, I can't believe my mom allowed this to happen. Um, I think she was in the photo with me. I can't remember. But I, there's this picture of me as like a two-year-old sitting up with my back against a tiger, like a grown, full Bengal tiger. I'm just sitting there with this tiger, and I'm getting a cute little photo for the photo album. And, and now as I'm looking back on that photo, I'm like, I cannot believe my mother would allow this because my mom was one of those that, like, every time there was a documentary on, like, Dateline or 2020 or something that was, like, you know, teaching kids how to be cautious and careful about, you know, predators and different things that were dangerous to children and stuff, she was, like, making me watch it. And she was so careful and so cautious with me. And yet she let me sit next to a Bengal tiger and take a photo with it. It will never make sense to me, ever. But it's like this reverential awe that you ought to have in the presence of someone or something that is more powerful than you. That's the kind of reaction that people have here when they see God do this incredible thing. Not only had God shut Zechariah's mouth, but then he had the power to open it again. And so they're in awe at what God has done in the birth of this son, John, who was prophesied 400 years before that he would come, before the Messiah, and then also that God has done this incredible thing in shutting Zechariah's mouth for nine months and then allowing him to speak again. They're in awe. They're amazed by it. And this is, this is our, our proper response to God. This is, this is how we ought to be when we see who God is. We ought to be in awe at his power, at his glory, at his goodness, at his grace and his mercy. We ought to be in awe. The, the people, they, they laid these things up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? They're, they're remembering what they've seen as, as significant. They're remembering what God has just done as significant because they still have some questions about what God is going to do. They, they've seen God do an incredible thing here, and, and they're wondering how this is going to impact life from here on out. They're wondering how God is going to continue to play this story out. What's going to happen next? And so they laid these things up in their hearts, remembering what God has done here, because they know that this is a significant act of God. After God has been silent for 400 years, he has spoken, and he is going to continue speaking through this prophet, John the Baptist. And so they're laying these things up in their heart. They're remembering what God has done here in reverential fear and awe of him, so that they'll continue to recognize what God is doing going forward. 
Secondly, we see that we must also be learning to obey God's words. Just like we need to learn to fear God's majesty, we must learn to obey God's words. So Zechariah, the reason his mouth is open is because of his obedience here. Look at what it says. They gave him a writing tablet, and he wrote, His name is John, which is exactly what Gabriel told him. And so Zechariah, because of his doubt, was, was, his mouth was shut for nine months. And then now, because of his obedience... Because he's, he's learned his lesson. He's trusting what God has said will come true and is coming true. And so he says his name is John. It's exactly what God had promised is, is happening. And so he says his name is John. And then his mouth is immediately open, his tongue loosed. And so Zechariah, he, he learns to obey God. This was like the longest time out ever. And so if you think about, like, when you're a kid, you know, and your parents put you in timeout, they, they say, go over there and sit in that corner and think about what you've done, okay? I want you to think about this, and they want you to not have toys, not have games, you know, and they want you to go sit somewhere in silence and think about what has happened. And the reason they want you to think about it is because they want you to learn from it, okay? This is, what the, like, the longest timeout ever. God puts Zechariah in timeout for, like, nine months, and he's got all this time to think about what God has said, what he's promised to do, what God has done already in the coming of Gabriel and this promise to him and his wife. And then it happens. And over these nine months, at some point, Zechariah has, has learned something here. He's learned to trust God. And so I think when we look at this, we have to ask ourselves, how do you respond to God's loving discipline in your own life? Do you respond with praise-filled faith or like Zechariah or with disdain-filled doubt of God's goodness and power? Do you go further into your doubt of what God has said or, or do you allow God's loving discipline to, to change your course, to, to change your tune and, and to result in further trust and further obedience and further praise? Because that's the next thing that we have to learn, is we have to learn, be learning always to be praising God's faithfulness. So look at verse 64. So Zechariah's mouth is immediately open and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. He's worshiping God. He's learned to praise God in response. Because he now knows God is able to do what he's promised regardless of, of his own doubts. This is what we have to learn. We have to learn that God is always faithful and he does what he says he'll do regardless of what circumstances look like at the time and regardless of how much we doubt and question him. We must learn to praise God's faithfulness by looking back on what God has done and fulfilling his promises, just like Zechariah realizes here. And finally, we have to learn to proclaim God's works. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying. So prophecy is, is, is proclamation, okay? It's proclaiming something that is spirit-inspired truth from God, and it's for God's people, okay? So Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit, and, and he begins to prophesy, and he's about to, to sing as he prophesies. He's about to say some, sing some things that are true about God and what God is doing in this redemptive moment of history, and so a spirit-filled person is a gospel-proclaiming person is what we'll see. Zechariah begins to proclaim what God is going to do through the Messiah, through Jesus, and how his son's ministry, John the Baptist, is, is a forerunner. He's preparing them for this. So let's look at what Zechariah proclaims God has accomplished. 
says, Zechariah says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. See, the message that we proclaim is that God has come to save. These two words here, visited and redeemed, are at the heart of the Christian message. This is what it's all about. This is what the story of the Bible is all about. This is what Advent, this is what Christmas is about, is that God has visited his people. He has come to us to save. He has come to redeem us. He has come to redeem his people. The first thing that Zechariah realizes as, as God is, is fulfilling his promise in the birth of his own son is that the birth of John means that the birth of Jesus is not long after. Is that this is evidence that God has visited his people. He has come to us and that God is redeeming his people. This is what Zechariah begins to realize and he begins to expand on this. And so... <coughs> That word visited, we, we talk about that in the context of Advent, the coming of God to save his people in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is what theologians call the incarnation. This is God with us. This is God present in the person of Jesus. This is what Advent means, is that God himself has come in Jesus to us. Zechariah says that God has visited his people and so the message of Christianity is centered around God coming to save. The message of Christmas is that God has come to save his people. This is what it's all about. It's not, it's not that you can become a better version of yourself through, through charity and good works and, and giving to the needy around the holidays. It's not that you are the best version of yourself and, and deserving of love and, and all your dreams in life and that those things uh, will be accomplished. It's not either of those things. It, 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 the message of Christmas is, not, is also not that with a little positivity and, and Christmas spirit, whatever that is, that it's not that a little positivity and Christmas spirit, you'll find your true love and everything that you wanted to work out will work out for the holidays and all your relationships with your loved ones will be uh, exactly as you hoped they would be, reconciled and restored. It's not any of those things. Christmas isn't about the gifts that we give to one another. It's about the gift that's been given to us by God. Christmas is not about you becoming a better version of yourself. It's not about you being the best version of yourself and deserving of what you want. It's not about your hopes and dreams coming true. It's not about things working out with family members. It's not, it's not about any of those things. See, but our culture constantly is, is communicating those messages to us through the, the Christmas movies we watch and, the, and some of the songs we hear on the radio or in the department stores, you know, it's, it's communicating that this is the most wonderful time of the year. And you know what? It is because of what it's really about. But for most of us, I would say, and, and if not most, a lot of us, sometimes this isn't the most wonderful time of the year when we look at our circumstances 
when we look at our family relationships, when we look at how, you know, though we've prayed for years and years, we're, we're still stingle or we're still childless or, you know, whatever it is that's been on your heart for so long and you've hoped for it, it just hasn't happened. Maybe it's a broken relationship with a, a loved one that you've so longed for it to see it restored and, and you just think every Christmas, you know, you watch all these Hallmark movies and how everything works out at the end and, and you just think, okay, this is what it's all about. If I'll just have enough Christmas spirit, then everything's going to work out. Because I'm good enough. Because I can be better. See, that's not what Christmas is about at all. Christmas is about the fact that we've made a total mess of things. That, that when given our shot, we mess it all up. We sin against God, we sin against our loved ones, we, we sin against those around us, and, and we break things because we're most concerned with us, not God's will and God's purposes. And so, frankly, a lot of the time, we don't even think about God at Christmas. We have our Christmas traditions, but most of those traditions don't even involve anything to do with God or his word. And we place our hope in other places at the one time of the year where we're supposed to be celebrating the fact that all those places are hopeless and that our true hope can be found in the fact that God has come to us to save, to redeem, to restore that which has been broken. God has come to reconcile us with himself in the person of Jesus Christ. This is what Christmas is all about. Zechariah is going to go on to say that it's, it's, it's as though a sun has risen after a dark night. And so look, look, at, look with me at uh, verses 78 and 79. Just after talking about the tender mercy of, of our God, he says, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. You see, the hope of Christmas is that the sun has risen on a people walking in darkness and a people sitting in the shadow of death. The, the imagery here is, is, is of those who, who can't see the way. They're in darkness. They need the lights to come on. You think about when you're in a dark room and you're, and you're trying to find your way across the room and, and you, you stub your toe and then, then you run into a wall and, and in our basement, we've got these poles there that are metal solid poles and so like if you don't have lights on and you end up walking into one of those things you're gonna be down for the count I mean you're gonna be out for a little while but what we need in the darkness is somebody to turn the light on we need the light to come because when light shows up darkness has to flee and that's what has happened in the fact that God has visited us that God has come to us is that those of us who don't know him, who don't know our way back to him, who don't know how to have a relationship with him, those of us who have been walking in darkness, separated from God because of the ways we've sinned against him and separated ourselves from him, God himself has shown up as the light of the world in Jesus Christ, and the sun has dawned on those walking in darkness. This is what Advent is about. This is what Christmas is about. This is what Jesus has done. He has brought 
the light and shown it into the darkness that we might know the way of peace. We might know how to be reconciled to God. And through that reconciliation with God, that begins to shape and transform the rest of life as well to where we begin to understand what forgiveness means and what it means to be reconciled to one another because of the forgiveness we've received from God through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, that other word, redeemed. So God has visited his people and he's also redeemed and, de- and he's delivering us. So uh, historically, God's people uh, have experienced oppression and abuse and, and, been, and been enslaved in, in so many different ways in so many different time periods. You think about, in the Old Testament, you think about how Israel was enslaved to the Egyptians and then all their difficulties with the Canaanites even after they had started to go into the Promised Land. And then you think about the Babylonians and the Assyrians who conquered Israel at different times in their history and enslaved them and did brutal things to them. And then you think about even in Zechariah's day with the Romans and how God's people were still longing for deliverance from oppression, from abuse that they'd suffered. They were still longing for the day when God himself would come and fulfill all his promises, delivering them from their enemies. And Zechariah says that the birth of John is evidence that God has visited his people and he's redeeming them so that he will deliver them from their enemies. We think about even our spiritual enemies, Satan and demons, and how they've been against God's purposes and against God's people from the beginning. So this this hope that we have in this passage that Zechariah puts it this way in in verse 74, that we being delivered from the, the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. He talks about earlier in the passage uh, this horn of salvation. So Zechariah uh, mentions this phrase that uh, we read earlier in the service, I believe, in a passage uh, where David was speaking. And then uh, if you go to Psalm 92, which we don't have time to do right now, but if you look at verse 10, what you'll see there is that this horn of salvation idea, it, it, it wasn't a, a horn like a trumpet. It wasn't a musical instrument. The, the horn that's mentioned here is, is like an animal's horn. Because it was a symbol of power and victory. It was a means to accomplish deliverance from enemies. And so you think about how you know, human beings are, somehow we are the most in, intelligent beings in creation and also the dumbest. Um, and it's an amazing fact. You know, I've been discovering all sorts of things this week. You know? um, but I, I think about like bull riding and stuff, right? So, so bulls have these massive horns that kind of symbolize their power and strength, right? And, and we are audacious enough to think, you know what? We can defeat the bull. And so we ride bulls, and we taunt bulls with, with red capes, and even in some countries, we try to outrun bulls as though, as, as though we're faster than them. Can I just tell you a secret? The human being never wins that fight. I don't care if you stayed on the bull for eight seconds. Eventually, he bucked you off. And if you don't get out of there quick enough, he's going to slay you. He's going to win. Because he has these massive horns and all this strength. There's no way you win this fight. It's fool- we're foolish enough to think we can, though, and that, and that we have, right? 
But, but the, the imagery of, of a horn, it, it means strength and the ability to conquer. And, and so God, in the person of Jesus, has brought the horn of salvation. He is the strong one that we can run to. He is the one who is able to deliver us from our enemies, whether they be earthly enemies, whether they be the suffering we've experienced and abuse and oppression in life in so many different ways, or whether they be the spiritual enemies that we don't see that are constantly waging war around us and against us. God is able to deliver his people from their enemies and, and from suffering. And, and one day he will finally complete that deliverance. And, and this horn of salvation that has come in Jesus, uh, the one who was prophesied to come from David's line, that John has been born, it's evidence to Zechariah and, and, and those that this horn of salvation has come, he's present, he is here. And this deliverance is now possible. And, and God, the thing about God is he doesn't just deliver us from abuse and oppression and, and suffering one day when he restores all things and rights all wrongs and wipes tears from our eyes, but he also now delivers and redeems us from sin, the thing that, that caused all this suffering in the first place, the thing that broke the cosmos. Zechariah says that John's purpose is to prepare God's people to have knowledge of salvation and the forgiveness of sins. To prepare them to understand redemption. See, re redemption redemption is to release something from captivity through the payment of a price that's necessary. And so when we sinned against God, we we were set up to inherit only death. We were gonna walk in darkness and inherit the shadow of death and, and that was gonna be our end. But Zechariah says God has visited his people and redeemed them and the place we see that most fully is the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, Advent, it's not just about the birth of a baby. It's about the birth of the conquering king who has conquered his enemies by being slain for his people on a Roman cross. This is how God has paid the price for us. This is how he's made our redemption possible. And so even now we can begin to rejoice in what God has done because we don't have to wait for just the second advent of Jesus whenever he's gonna wipe all tears from our eyes, but we can begin to have joy in him now because he liberates and delivers us from our sin. He gives us forgiveness that we don't deserve. He's a God of mercy and grace, which is what John points us to. And this is why Zechariah is so filled with joy and filled with the Holy Spirit that he sings and he prophesies because he wants us to know this. He wants us to know that John has come so that a greater one can come in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So will you trust in him today? Will you put your hope in him this Advent, this Christmas season? Instead of hoping that things are just gonna work out with your family 
instead of hoping that you can be a better, uh, you know, a new year better you come 2020? You place your hope in the horn of salvation that has come from the line of David to fulfill all God's promises and the one who is actually able to deliver you from the sin that has broken us and broken our world. Because that's where hope is found at Christmas time. That's where joy is found, is in the advent, the coming of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for your strength. In the midst of our weakness, we look to you, Jesus, the horn of our salvation, the one who is able to defeat all our enemies, the one who is able to deliver us from the sin that has separated us from God. God, we look forward to celebrating on the 25th and we celebrate even as it approaches because what we remember is that we don't just look forward to your coming, we look back on it, that it has already happened and that we can begin to enjoy the benefits of redemption and forgiveness of sins in you. So God, help us to trust you. Help us to learn what Zechariah has learned. Help us to respond in faith. Help us to walk with you and hope in you alone. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.